Our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, and then 24 through 27. And as he came out of the temple, one of Jesus' disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs that these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And, what, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But... Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fall. I want to draw your attention to that first line of our story, which... As they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. What wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. We don't know which one of the disciples made this exclamation of adoration or admiration about the temple. It's not, it's somewhat surprising comment given everything that's been happening in the temple between Jesus and its rulers. Jesus has been in a state of continuous conflict since he entered Jerusalem, in conflict with temple culture and temple rulers. And just earlier, he chased out a whole bunch of money changers and called the temple a den of robbers. And right after that episode, Mark tells us that Jesus was walking in the temple when the chief priests and the rulers came to him um, with the intent of challenging his authority on a number of different topics. 
They grilled him to entrap him so that he would say something incriminating about himself so that they would have cause to have him arrested by the Romans. All the events of Mark chapter 11 and 12 have the context of the temple in view. And the stories show this increasing escalation of tension between Jesus and the rulers. And all this should underscore for us as readers um, the fact that the institutional culture of the temple was fundamentally corrupt and spiritually oppressive. That's why the exclamation, what wonderful stones, what what wonderful buildings, should strike us as somewhat tone deaf or out of, out of touch with what the reality is. Indeed, the temple was magnificent. It was beautiful. But it was also a den of robbers, <laughs> a spiritual wasteland, and its leaders were conspiring to destroy Jesus. At this point, I think it's important for us to understand what the temple symbolized for the imagination of a first century Jew. The temple was a symbol of religious identity and national pride. Even at the height of Israel's uh, political power under its king, it was always the temple, not the king's palace, not a monument that was the center and symbol of Israel's national life. The temple was a symbol of cultural, ethnic, spiritual, and political identity It was, you could say, the heartbeat, the nerve center of Jewish civilization. And so the statement, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, is a statement that any good Jew in the first century who is patriotic and pious would have agreed to. And so given this reality, Jesus' response to the disciples is quite startling. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Someday, all of this will be destroyed. That's what he's saying. There will not be one stone. And what Jesus is doing here is he is actually making a prophecy about the destruction of the temple Now, this was an inconceivable thought for a Jew during this period. The temple had been the center of Jewish life for nearly 500 years, over 500 years. It had endured and survived numerous oppressive empires, the Assyrians and the the, the Medes, and now the Romans. And so it was a pretty outrageous idea that the temple would someday cease to be. It was just always there to take for granted. And it also seemed very out of touch with who Jesus should be as the Messiah, right? A Messiah like King David should protect the temple, should preserve the temple, reform and renew its institutional culture for sure, but not let it get destroyed. So how can you say the temple will be destroyed? The destruction of the temple for the Jew was tantamount to the destruction of Jewish identity. When Jesus was finally arrested, one of the bogus charges that the rulers leveled against him is that he wanted to destroy the temple, that that was part of his his M.O. 
They say this in chapter 14 in his trial. They say, when we heard him say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now Jesus was right, historically speaking, that not one stone would be left upon another. In the year 70, which is a mere uh, 35 or 40 years from the, t- the point that Jesus is speaking here, a legion of Roman uh, soldiers and army will enter Jerusalem to quell a Jewish rebellion. And they will lay siege on the city, the whole city, and they will raise the temple to the ground and destroy it completely, leaving only the, what we now know as the West Wall, the Wailing Wall, in place. And the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who was a Jew and lived during this time, um, estimated that there were nearly uh, over one million Jews that died in this siege because of it was happened during the time of Passover. Now, uh, Josephus's estimates are l- almost positively way uh, more than actually uh, were killed, but but it is very reasonable to think that there were thousands of Jews that died in Jerusalem on that day in 70. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left, one stone left on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus' statement here applies not only to ancient Israel. If this can happen to God's chosen people, it can happen to every nation and every civilization. Jesus' statement applies to all of us. All our civilizations, our cultures, our nations are far more frail and fragile than we dare imagine. And so what is true of the individual person and human being is also true of human civilizations. From dust we came and to dust we shall return. Now, with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine last week, I think we feel our fragility as civilization. As we witness the literal destruction of a human civilization and a culture and a nation, we, uh, we feel our vulnerability. We feel the fragility of the relative peace that has characterized life in in Europe and the United States since the end of the the World War II. And what's interesting is one of the most frequently heard lines, I think, now in the past week or so of political analysts by diplomats and historians and pundits is this, is that this fundamentally changes the world. (laughs) The world as we know it is going to change. We don't know how, but we know that it will. This war seems nearly inconceivable to the modern Western mind, I think, because this is the kind of war that isn't supposed to happen, right, in a modern civilized world in 2022. I think as Americans, even prior to the the war in Ukraine, we have been feeling uh, this fragility, uh, this vulnerability of our own nation as we have, especially in the past five years, but even before this, Um, been at war, a kind of inner war among ourselves against one another over a whole host of issues. And on the political right and on the political left, there is this sense of 
that democratic institutions, that American society and culture as we know it is being destroyed, being pulled down. And I think as Americans, we can be like the disciples a little bit in how we think about our relationship to the nation. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. What, be, what wonderful buildings. Isn't this a wonderful country? How could you ever let it come to ruin? And I think when we do this, we make the same mistake the disciples make, which is to too closely adopt, align our sense of stability, identity, and destiny, and all the wonderful, truly wonderful, stones and buildings of the nations. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I am not saying <laughs> that we should welcome the destruction of nations and civilizations. Not at all. We should not look on that with some kind of perverse glee. I've heard some Christians saying that Russia had to do this in order for uh, the things to be set in motion for Jesus to come. That's total nonsense. We as Christians do not take a perverse glee in the destruction of nations or the disintegration of civilizations. Quite to the contrary, I believe that the goodness of human civilizations and nations are worth fighting to protect and to preserve. And I hope that we as a nation, as the United States, do everything within our power to come to the aid of the Ukrainians. The reality is that whenever a nation or a civilization is under attack or assault, whether uh, through actual uh, assault and violence or otherwise, people's lives are also under assault. Who lives in the buildings of civilization? We do, right? That's what it means to be human. Jesus is not rebuking the disciples, or is he rebuking us for being invested in temple life, for having an identity that's shaped and formed by that as Americans or Ukrainians? Jesus is reminding us, though, of the fragility and the frailty of all human civilizations. He is checking our presumptuousness, our about the permanency of the world order as we experience it. He is checking our presumptuousness about our ability to predict and to control history. The, the disciples' response to Jesus about um, the temple being destroyed um, kind of reflects this. He's the, you know, they're sitting across, the, across from the temple on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at the temple. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they ask Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of all these things when they're about to be accomplished? There's a sense of urgency in their, in their, their question. Lord, what can we do? If this is true, what can we do about this? if we could predict, if we could know when it would happen, perhaps there's something that we could do to intervene. If we could know how history would play out, we might be able to change the course of things. And Jesus' response to their question begins 
um, what is in the Gospel of Mark the longest uh, section of teaching of Jesus in the whole Gospel, chapter 13. And I've only given you a little snippet of it here. And it, it has the endearing title given to it by uh, New Testament scholars as the Little Apocalypse. What Jesus' response to this question is, is, is a little apocalypse. And what Jesus wants to do here is he wants to completely reframe our um, thinking about history and where we as his followers fit within it. And his response is hardly a comfort, at least in the beginning. And he begins to narrate a very long list of tragic events that will accompany the end of the world. You might call them a litany of woes. And in this litany of woes, there is war and the rumors of war, earthquakes, famine, division, persecution, and even um, for his followers, execution. And actually far, far worse than this. And it, you know, we often will read these passages and we'll say, well, well, this speaks to the end of time. See, all of these things that Jesus talks about in, in Mark chapter 13 are things that happen in the life of the disciples. The book of Acts, you see all of these things happen. <laughs> see, we always live at the end of history. That's what it means to be the church. We always living at the end of history. We're not waiting for certain things politically to take shape and they're like, ah, no, Jesus is coming. Now, there's a sense that Jesus is coming and is near and that these things repeat and pattern themselves in Christian history. We live at the end of history. But this question is, well, why does Jesus say these things? Is he trying to scare us? Is he trying to scare us? Is he trying to say that all human civilizations and cultures are, are pretty much worthless and that you should stop caring about it and that you should be more heavenly minded and you should just look forward to to him coming back and, and rescuing you from, from the world? Not at all. Not at all. What Jesus is doing is he is reminding us of our frailty and our fragility, even as nations, cultures, and civilizations. Even the foundation stones of civilization at the end are not enough. They're not enough. We need God. Jesus is trying to help us see that we are not in control of history. We can no more predict it than we can control it. Jesus wants us to know that the Lord will judge the nations and will confront the arrogance and the wickedness and the cruelty of nation upon its own people and nation against nation. He wants us to know that there is no human civilization or culture no matter how great or how powerful that will escape his righteous judgment. This was true for the Assyrians, for the Babylonians, for Israel, for the Romans. It will be true for Russia and it will be true for America. And what this should do is humble us. It should humble us and drive us and trust and hope in the Lord. Now, I think the natural question is, <laughs> how should we respond as Christians? What is our response when it seems like the world is coming undone and we are actually going into the apocalypse? 
Again, I think the temptation there's, is to be afraid. Um, it's to freak out. It's to pick up arms. Or, um, or it's to head to the bunkers in the basements and to hide yourself until the, until the trouble passes. But this is not how Jesus advises us. I want to just conclude with just two things that Jesus tells us, I think, we can draw from this. About what do we do? How do we respond when the world seems like it's topsy-turvy and out of control? The first thing that Jesus says is this. He says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. I mean, it's funny. He says, don't be alarmed, and then he goes on and gives this litany of woes. Don't be surprised that these things are happening. I, don't freak out. I told you that it was going to happen. You should expect this. This is all part of God's mysterious plan. That he is bringing the nations into judgment, but at the same time, he is also spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's a mystery what's going on. We don't understand. We shouldn't presume to understand. But Jesus tells us, don't be alarmed. God is still in control. Even though it might not seem that way, God is still in control. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus, I think, draws our attention to is this. Don't try and predict the future. You can't predict the future. The Son of Man could not, he says later on in this chapter, it's not in our reading, but he says, even the Son of Man doesn't know the hour and the time. See, when prediction in in this particular context is like control. If we predict the future, there's a presumption that we can control our destiny. We can control events and guide history to our own ends. And Jesus says, don't even try. Instead of trying to predict the future, seek to be faithful in the present. If you, if you want to summarize this chapter in one sentence, it's that. Don't try to predict the future. Don't try to control things. Divine them out. Be faithful in the present. And part of what that means, Jesus will explain, is to be watchful, be on guard, be aware of what's going on. Be watchful for God's presence. Now, Mark um, 13 is not a standard text for Ash Wednesday, um, but I think it's an appropriate one. It is the very last teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark before he enters his passion and he's arrested. And it's about being watchful and discerning about God's, God's presence in our midst in the topsy-turvy world. And we know that soon Jesus himself will be arrested, put on trial, tortured, and crucified. The temple of his body will be destroyed. But it is precisely in this singular event which to the eyes of the watching world and to the eyes of his disciples seems like utter catastrophe, utter failure, but we know it's not. It is not the end of the story. What we, the disciples couldn't realize in the course of that, those three days from his passion to his resurrection was that the world was changing. It fundamentally changed and they didn't know it. And it would take generations and centuries for that to become more and more manifest as the gospel spreads. Friends, our foundation stone 
is the temple of Jesus himself. It is in him that we as human beings have a future. We have a destiny. We have a secure and stable identity. And despite all these many scary things that Jesus says about the end of history, he assures us that he and he alone is the last man of history. He is the end, the only end of history. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and, they, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Amen. I invite you to take a moment of silence, perhaps close your eyes and reflect and pray before we move to the next part of our service.